Good morning, church. We're going to read Deuteronomy 14, 1 and 2. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your forehead for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you're wondering why we've been or why we're reading Deuteronomy today, it's not a specially chosen text for Mother's Day. This is uh, uh, a book that we've been going through for several weeks now. So we are in Deuteronomy 14. You're, you're seeing the challenge. We're, we're actually not starting or stopping at, at chapter 14, verse 2. Uh, we're going all the way through 16, 17, but you're starting to see the, the difficulty of, of having to read all that. So we went with two verses this morning that hopefully were uh, helpful for us to get us started in Deuteronomy 14. Uh, God has been really uh, serious with Israel about how they're going to live once they get into the promised land. He's identified them and saved them to be his own possession, this treasured people. But how are they going to continue that distinction in the promised land? And that's what God is getting ready to get to. They don't get to go into the promised land and put on a uniform or a jersey that would, would distinguish them from other nations. Uh, what God prescribed for them is something a lot different. He wanted them to act different, to do different things, to be a different kind of people all the way down to the core. Uh, and he didn't want them to make that distinction themselves. In, in other words, he didn't want them to decide these are the ways that we want to be distinct or not be distinct. God was going to dictate that. He was going to govern the way that he wanted them to be distinct. And so God's people here in, in the book of Deuteronomy, he, he calls them to be a distinct people, a distinguished people. And here in the promised land, in, in these chapters, 14 through part of 16, it, there's three kind of ways that I think God lays down for them to be a distinct people. They are to have, these are my headings, not the scripture's headings, right? They're to have clean plates, generous hands, and marked calendars. And all of these things, the, the point of them is, is to make them, again, to mark them and to distinguish them from all the other nations that are around them, to mark them as a holy people, God's holy people. But before getting to those requirements and to those distinctions, those responsibilities that go with it, the, the requirements that God has given to them, he reminds them of their identity. In verse 14, or chapter 14, verse 1, he says, you are the sons of the Lord your God. The move from chapter 13 to 14, if you remember, is a move from a heap of judgment that's burned up in chapter 13, that's how it ended, to sons of the Lord, chapter 14, verse 1. Quite the contrast, very stark, and I, I think that the stark move is intentional to grab their attention, to, to get them to see, like, that is not what you want to become. Instead, you're sons of the Lord, here's how you want to be distinguished. They aren't sons because they worked themselves into that position. Right? They, they didn't make themselves adoptable or, or somehow work their way into being treasurable before the Lord. No, God chose them to be his treasured possession. He moved them. He was the one that moved them from being slaves in Egypt to being his children, his very sons. And, and we have to recognize that that got off to a really poor start. They come out of Egypt and they're barely through the Red Sea, and, and what do we see on the other side? They, they immediately start rebelling against the Lord in their hearts. And then God has them go around the wilderness for 40 years, 
a time period marked of more rebellion and hard-heartedness, stubborn nature, and God still doesn't cast them off or say, you know what, I'm going to send you back to Egypt or maybe another nation. Perhaps you'd like them to be Lord over you instead of me. Doesn't do that. He doesn't make an end of them as they deserved. He endures them. And he's still faithful to them. And he remained faithful to them. And here in chapter 14, he reminds them of this. Your sons. Because he remained faithful, not because they did. He says of them, you're a, verse 2, you're a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to people, be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now, at times it might have been, like, especially as we go through Deuteronomy, it might continue to be a challenge to identify with Israel. But here's how we can. We know we have the same God, same Father, and we too, from this God and Father, receive the same status. We, we don't receive the same status as sons by joining Israel, by becoming an Israelite. Those who are in Jesus are those who are now sons of the living God. And we have the same story, too. Not only same father, but the same story. And maybe it's not in Egypt, but we, too, were once sold into slavery to sin and death. And now, by the grace of Christ, can be called sons of the one true living God. We now get to take after our, our Lord and elder brother Jesus as sons with a father. And the scripture tells us really clearly that Jesus, this elder brother Lord, is the firstborn among many brothers. So all who are in him now have that same primary identity as sons. The status has shifted from slaves to sons. So moms and seniors, if you're in Jesus, you're sons of the living God. Or if you can't be identified as either a mom or a senior, for whatever reason, good, bad, or ugly, if you're in Jesus, you're sons of the living God. And it's not because, again, that we've worked our way into that position. We mirrored Israel far too much than we can probably realize in our rebellion and hard-heartedness. We were sold into slavery to sin, and so we haven't worked our way into that position. We haven't become adoptable to God, but God loves us in His Son, and so if you're in Jesus, you share that same status as sons of the Lord. So this morning, if you are in Jesus, take a deep breath. Because as a son, there's no more condemnation for you. I kind of go down the, the Romans 8, just glory road. That you're, there's no condemnation for you anymore. You don't have a spirit of slavery to fall back into sin and, and fear. You've been given this, this spirit of adoption as sons that cries out, Abba, Father, and is always Heard before your Father, because God loves us in Jesus. We're sure of this, that we are heirs of everything that Jesus is an heir of, which is all things. He, he assures us as sons that everything is working for our good to make us more and more like our elder brother, Lord Jesus. We, we know that the Father is for us, and if he's for us in Christ, then none can be against us or ultimately separate us from the Father's love. And so if you're a son in Jesus, take a deep breath. Because this new identity and status in Jesus is, is then changes everything how you live your life. It's to change Israel and how they live too. It's this pivotal thing that they need to understand their identity in order to see themselves rightly and in order to be instructed rightly from their God. And so he starts out with this identifier, this status, your sons of God. And as sons, they are to live in a certain way. There are some, some 
duties of sonship for them to fulfill. Deuteronomy has repeatedly called them to do and keep. Like, do what God has told you. Keep the law. Obey him. Fear this God. In other words, you're, you're living a life in obedience. Or, or in chapter 13, it said, do what is right in the sight of God. There are some duties of sonship. And the father makes sure that these sons know clearly what he requires of them. And so as sons, they're, they're to see their doing and their keeping as commands from their father who loves them, who has made them his own, who treasures them. This is to be heard as, as from a father to sons. This is to be heard rightly. And essentially, the, the commands that follow in chapter 14, 15, and 16 are, are commands that would be in obedience to the, the commands he's already given. Now, you remember the, the Ten Commandments. We're kind of walking through a little bit of, of one through three, right? That's, that's what these chapters are going to do for us. And they get really practical. They take those, those t- first three commands and they put them on the ground and they get really practical. Listen to verse 1. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. We think that this was a Canaanite cultural practice for death and, and mourning. And Israel is to simply not be like that. Don't be like those other nations. This is something that's, that's repeated over and over again through the book of Deuteronomy. Like, these nations might be doing that. So what? Don't do that. You're not to be like that. Don't go that direction. Perhaps there's some pushback here for how the Canaanites treated the body and, and a little bit of disregard for the body in a way that God's people aren't to do that. But the core principle is given to us in verse 2. Here's why you're not to do that. Essentially, this is the, the ground of it. Because you're people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the earth. So the, the answer to kind of, well, why of, of this weird command in verse 1? Well, because you're God's. That's why. And, and he's saying it. And so you do what he tells you to do. God wants Israel to be a distinct people, and so he gives some requirements that are discernible. And, and this would have been one that in the land would have been discernible. He continues, verse 3. Here's the, the clean plates. You, you shall not eat any abomination. These are the animals that you may eat. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roebuck, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. Every animal that parts the hoof and has the hoof cloven in two and chews the cud. Among the animals you may eat. Yet of those that chew the cud or have the hoof cloven, you shall not eat these. The camel, the hare, and the rock badger, because they chew the cud but do not part the hoof, are unclean for you. And the the pig, because it parts the hoof but does not chew the cud, is unclean for you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. Of all that's in the waters, you may eat these. Whatever has fins and scales, you may eat. And whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. You may eat all clean birds, but these are the ones you shall not eat. The eagle, of course, because of America. <laughs> the, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite. The, I, I'm just kidding. I, we need to make that clear. There's some, there's, this is not American reference here with the eagle. I think I was here at 13. The kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the night hawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl and the short-eared owl, the barn owl and the tawny owl, the carrion vulture and the cormorant, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe and the bats and all winged insects are unclean for you. They shall not be eaten. All clean winged things you may eat. You shall not eat anything that has died naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns that he may eat, but you, or may sell it to a foreigner, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You shall not eat a young goat, 
not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, Moses kind of briefly goes through these here. He doesn't really give justification or explanation of many of those, these things because they are stated in the law in, in the book of Leviticus. So he kind of simply states them here with this really odd ending, right? Verse 21, isn't that a little bit strange? Like, don't eat anything that has died naturally. You can give it to somebody, a sojourner who's within your towns. He may eat of it. You can sell it to a foreigner, but you're not to, to do this because I, uh, we don't know. Maybe it's because of the, the idea of blood, that they were to drain the blood first because of blood and life that he's already talked about. That We're not exactly sure. Or what about the, the end of 21? You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Perhaps there was a, a warning against kind of some syncretism within the land. Of, of He's been really careful to warn them about worshiping in the way that the Canaanites were worshiping. And, and perhaps this was a way that it could kind of be snuck in there and for them to kind of do it in that way. But why are these things listed ultimately is, is because God said. Right? It, he grounds it twice. Like verse 1 and 2 show him, here's why you're going to do these things. You're a holy people. Verse 21, he puts that right in the middle of those odd commands. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. So we could say of these things, like, I, we don't know all the justification for them. And Moses doesn't even list them here. He might say something like, that might be acceptable for them, but it's not for you. Why? Because you're God's. That's why. You belong to him. Here's the reason for all the food laws. That you are a holy people. You are a distinct people to the Lord. And, and so when we look at these laws, these laws weren't laws primarily about taste. They, they weren't about God's preferred animals. They, they weren't even about proper dieting and, and God wanting them to have healthy bodies. They were about, this is a people that's to be distinct, that belongs to the Lord. And this is what he gives of them. And so they're to follow because they belong to God. It's clear that this isn't about the, the inherent nature of eating these animals because when we have Jesus come in Mark chapter 7, verse 19, he, he declares all foods clean. So there wasn't something inherently sinful and wrong about eating of any of these animals. Or in Acts chapter 10, Peter gets this vision from above. It, it lays down these unclean animals and it says kill and eat. And he's like, ah, oh, I'm not doing that. And he says, what God created, don't call unclean. Right? So clearly, there's, there's nothing inherently sinful about eating these foods. These laws were about distinguishing Israel as the people of God out of all the other peoples that were around them and out of all the other peoples on the earth. God doesn't leave it to Israel to decide these things. Like, well, which ones should we eat to be distinct or not? No, he's going to give them the list. He doesn't want their ever-shifting appetites and desire, desires to decide what's going to distinguish them as the people of God. He makes the distinctions, and he makes them in clear ways. Think about this. Here's one of the clearest ways you can make a distinction. Food. This is a distinction that would have been seen and known and lived out daily. There's hardly a more practical way to distinguish a people than regulating their everyday life. And there's hardly a more practical way then of distinguishing a people than regulating what they eat every single day. So, so thinking about what they would eat would be this practical daily activity. You remember how God was using manna in the wilderness. That manna was teaching them something. It was teaching them that every day we're dependent upon God. And we have to trust in this God. And he always provides for us. It was teaching them to be a dependent people and that the Lord was going to provide all that they needed. Well, thinking about which foods are clean, which meat is clean and unclean, what can we eat, what can we not eat, could remind them that they are distinct people every single meal. 
Yeah, we're not to have unclean food because we're holy unto the Lord. Every meal could remind them of that reality. I love how one commentator put it. A God who governs the kitchen should not be easily forgotten in the rest of life. And I think that's what God is getting at here in these commands. we, We might be thankful that these laws are fulfilled in Jesus and that he's declared all food clean so that we can eat bacon. What a blessing, right? But do you know God as the one who still governs the kitchen and and the table and, and all of our daily lives? Because we are distinct people. We, we follow the one, after all, who came. This was kind of a, a scandalous charge against Jesus in Luke chapter 7. He's the one who came eating and drinking. And we're following after him. We, we can be distinct in even how we eat and we drink because we're a distinct people. We're, we're following after this one who came eating and drinking. And he is the one who, who even set up a meal of distinction for his people, a, a meal that celebrates death, that looks to a future resurrection, That's a distinguished meal, a distinct meal, and actually there's warnings in the New Testament like that's for God's people to take, not for others. It's to distinguish them from others because they are the ones uniquely saying, Jesus has died for me, and that he's going to come back one day, and that we're sure of this, and so we take this meal we call the Lord's Supper in the hope of that, in trusting in that. And so food in in the New Testament, if you start looking, it's, it's kind of all over the place. It's everywhere. It's, it's a way of showing love to your neighbor in the matter of what's eaten, but also who you're eating it with. Those are all covered in the New Testament. They speak to all those things. But, but Paul kind of lays it out for us really succinctly and clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. He says, whatever you eat or drink, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. So every time a believer, one who is in Christ, who's trusted in Jesus, takes a bite or a drink, They can do it in such a way as to distinguish them because they're doing it for the glory of God. So believers can eat and drink in such a way, even in their manner of eating, to show that they value and that they treasure, not the things that they're eating or even the things of this earth in comparison, but they value and treasure above all things God. And so they can eat and drink to the glory of God. They can treasure God and not the things that they're eating because they're a different kind of people. And so while these ritual laws of, of Deuteronomy chapter 14 don't govern God's people now, the law has been fulfilled in Christ and all foods are now clean, God is the God who still should govern the kitchen. All right? Sorry, moms, if it's like, if it's mom's kitchen and stay out of my domain. Like, it's not mom's kitchen if you're in Christ. It's the Lord's kitchen still, right? Dads, if you're guys, if you're master of the grill, like, well, ultimately Jesus is is Lord of life. Like, that's the master of the grill. And you're to eat and drink to the glory of God every time. So food matters to God's people. Clean plates, not that they're completely empty, but clean clean plates matter to to God's people. Here's a daily practical way of giving glory to God, of, of ordering our lives rightly under his good reign and his good rule. But Israel was to have not just clean plates, but generous hands. Look what he says in chapter 14, verse 22. He moves from thinking about plates to to thinking about what you do with your possessions. He says, verse 22, you shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and the flock, 
that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe, when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat therefore before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household, and shall not neglect the Levite who is in, within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. Tithing. It, it's just, in a, in a way, it's 10%, basically, they're set aside 10%, because it's, it's a, the, with the celebrations and the cycles, they would have worked essentially 10 months out of the year, and they're to set some of that aside. He says you're to tithe grain, wine, oil, livestock, and it's mandated that they do this annually. So again, like the, the total tithe would have been about a, a month's supply. And they were to take it to the place within the place, right? The, the place where God was going to make his name dwell. In other words, they were to be a people who were continue to move toward dependence upon God, move to where he shows them in reliance upon him, and they were to enjoy it there. He even says, hey, you know what? If it's, if it's too hard to take it, like if you've got a herd something all the way to Jerusalem, you're a long ways away, like you can turn it into cash. And here's what you're to do with it. Did you see this in verse 26? Spend the money whatever, on whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat therefore before the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. And, and don't neglect the, the Levite who's within your town. He has no portion or inheritance. So you're to share it with him. In other words, the tithe that God mandates upon them, that he requires of them, is, is a tithe that's going to fund a celebration. Like, we, we think of tithing, I mean, it just seems like it has this bad connotation. Here's the, the tithing it isn't shutting down of all the fun that they're to have. Like, we want you to have fun, but make sure you tithe. The laws don't shut down the fun. God isn't, like, against fun and rejoicing and celebrating. He's not this cosmic killjoy, just the opposite. Tithing didn't lay a, a burden upon them, even financially, to, to make them impoverished or anything like that. Tithing laid the burden of remembering what God had given to them. It laid the burden upon them of worshiping and celebrating all of God's generous provision. Tithing. Here it's a joyful, God-funded, through this tithe, feast for all of Israel, not just for the people that have it, also the Levites. They're to look to others. There's an eye to others. It's a God-funded feast for all of Israel to enjoy God's rich provision for them in the promised land. That's tithing here. Again, eating is distinguishing them. They're coming together and they're having a feast. They're celebrating. Clean and unclean food would do it. So too would eating. So too would tithing. It would distinguish them as a different people of God. And here he says, the reason for your tithing, the reason you're going to do this is verse 23. That you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. The, the celebration, the enjoyment, the rejoicing in what God has provided would be a means to teach them, to cement in them the fear of God, this, this awe and reverence of Him, this, this coming close to Him with trembling but still wanting to be close to Him, this leaning towards Him in love. And they are to rejoice and celebrate God's provision and His generosity. They are to recognize that this isn't something that came because they fulfilled some sort of ritual. Like they did the right practice, and if they, you do the right formula, then out comes the, the richness of this provision. It, they are to recognize that God is giving this, that he is a generous God who loves to take care of his treasured possession. And that's why he gave them the land, which is a, an abundant place. And so one important 
way to mark what God has given is to enjoy it. Get something that you like and enjoy it. Notice here that as they're enjoying it, there's no command. Like every time you buy that thing that you enjoy and you take a bite of it, you need to say amen after every bite. Doesn't say that. He doesn't say you need to make sure that you post a Bible verse on your plate so that you can remember that this is really uh, for the Lord. No, you know, the command here is to rejoice. So here's what God is doing here. He is instructing them on how to love him with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's instructing them how to love him with the gifts that he has given to them. And here's how they do it. Here's how you love God with the gifts that he gives. You enjoy it. Eat it. Drink it. Enjoy it. Receive it from God. We don't need to complicate this unnecessarily. Every good and perfect gift is from above. It's from God. So love God by enjoying the good gifts that he has given. God is no fun hater, right? The, the pleasure that you receive from a good meal was given by God. Think about that. You, you were created to receive that pleasure. Think of all the goodness and the layers of God that we could go into in the depth that God not only created good things, but he created you to be able to receive and know and recognize those things as good things. God created all of that. And then what God tells us to do in response to that is receive it. Enjoy it. Enjoy these gifts. The enjoyment of God's provision wasn't then turning people inward. Say, it's, it's about me and my pleasure. No, it doesn't do that at all. Look what he says here. There's an eye toward others in the middle of this. We're celebrating and we're trying to look to others to include them on the joy and the celebration too. It, it turns them outward with generous hands. And so he says in verse 27, not to neglect the Levite. Again, they didn't have these portions because they didn't have an inheritance in the land, but there were more. He says, here's another tithe. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled. They're welcomed in that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. Every year that the tithe is shared by the community. They're, they're bringing and inviting other people in. And then there's this triennial celebration here. Every third year that's to be shared again. And, and notice what's to be shared. They're not to say, hey, if you have some scraps left over, then try to make sure that the widow and the fatherless, that they have some. That's not what's happening here. They eat and are filled. That's what they're given. And God says, you know, if you do that, if you're looking outward like that, if you have these generous hands that are moving outward and receiving and then moving outward with generosity, that's the path of blessing. God's generosity was to be a generosity that was both received and shared with the weakest, the poorest, those who didn't have an inheritance. And that generosity is to characterize more than just their, their triennial celebration. There's a sabbatical year. And so in other words, you can see God working generosity into the very fabric of of their existence in the promised land. And so he turns to the commands for the sabbatical year, which is, again, moving them outward with generous hands. Chapter 15, verse 1, at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever, is a, whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. For there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. 
if only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you, and you shall lend money or lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow, and you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. It's chapter 15, the, the start of the sabbatical year, it, the, the description here is, is ideal, isn't it? it it's Edenic. You're, you're reigning and ruling over the earth. There's, there's provision everywhere given to you. It's this generous God who's, who's given. But notice the, the tie between obedience and generosity in community. Obedience and generosity towards others doesn't hinder flourishing in the promised land. They're looking to others and they're to strictly obey God and they're not being hindered in their flourishing in any way. In fact, in the promised land, it's just the opposite. When they're strictly obedient to God, the flourishing actually compounds. That more get to experience it, more get to rejoice in it. And so there's this ideal kind of Edenic state put up before them in chapter 15, verses 1 through 6 in this sabbatical year and this release. But the ideal won't always be reality. And so generous hands and open wallets are, are called for. Look, look in verse 7. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin." You shall give him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all, your under, under, all you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. They, they are, have this, these generous hands, an eye toward others, open-handed generosity, and he even has to warn them because he knows their hearts. God knows their hearts. He warns them of, of greed in their hearts, of, of this grudging in their hearts. He says you're not to be grudgingly giving to these people around you. You're to open your hands freely because the poor are going to be present. But didn't you see that in chapter 15, verse 4, it sounded like there's not going to be poor among you in this kind of ideal state. And then a couple times in 7 through 11, he says that there's going to always be poor. And so is this a contradiction? I think what one commentator says is helpful, that this probably is the best example of the tension which arises in Deuteronomy, often arises in Deuteronomy, between the goal, which the Mosaic preaching aims for, and the reality which it expects. So he puts the ideal before them all along the way with this realization and reality that the law is, is for less than ideal to move you in the right directions. And this open-handed generosity, it, it should extend to those less than ideal situations, that they should be a people who have generous hands moving toward others with an eye toward others and meeting their needs wherever they should be. So that's what this sabbatical year is set up to do. This is what they're to move towards to others within their midst. He even says, he continues, verse 12, if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman is sold to you, you shall serve he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free. And when you let him go free, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. 
you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day, this today. But if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household since he is well off with you, then you shall take an owl and put it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave, you shall do the same. It shall not seem hard to you when you let him go free from you, for at half the cost the hired worker he has served you six years. And so the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. So this debt servitude, should, should that happen? Should someone come in the need of, of help and, and have to work for their debt? He says, that's only to last six years. God wants to restore them. And, and again, the generosity to flow from God to them, and they're being richly provided for by God. And so they're to also be generous and generous with their stuff to other people. These are less than ideal situations, but, but God wants them to be able to enjoy that as a whole. In other words, God tells them he didn't redeem them, buy them back from slavery to have them continue in it. Even amongst themselves, like, hey, there might be a time when you need to work this debt out. But he says, then let it go. Six years, then let it go. And then he even says, hey, even if they stay, your open-handed generosity is to mark every stage of that. Why? Because your God redeemed you. I think God is working down into them this idea that his generosity is to beget their generosity. That he has redeemed them, that he has paid for them, that he has bought them back. And so they can then be generous to others. There's a theological motive. They're to have generous hands because they were once slaves. And if it weren't for God and his generosity toward them, they would still be slaves. But for his hands, they could never have free hands to work on their own. They would be working for another. And so because he has bought them, they are to have generous hands. He bought them from slavery. He allowed them, even as he brought them out, to plunder Egypt so that they would go out filled. He gave them this promised land. It's going to be this land of abundance and blessing. That's what he's promised to give them. They know this is a good land that provides richly. He's giving all of this, and that generosity is to continue to empower and motivate their generosity toward one another. They're to have generous hands in community. And it's that generosity that didn't just, shouldn't just mark the, the Old Testament people of God. It, it marked the early church, too. In the book of Acts, chapter 2, the, the church is just getting started, right? You, you have the Spirit comes, and Peter preaches, and this is just a, a way to describe a few things that were going on in the early church. Here's what it says, that these people who believed, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, they're gathered around the word, fellowship, so they were with one another, the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together, and they had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and, and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They, in other words, they had received the generosity of God that would forgive them as sinners in Christ. And, and then it moved them. I mean, just like the, the initial response is to move them to how can we share? How can we provide? How can we make sure things are taken care of? It moved them in generosity. So there's the ideal. Maybe in, in Acts chapter 2, the lesson ideal is addressed too in Acts. Right in chapter 6, there's this problem. Some widows aren't getting what they need. They're less than ideal. There's, there's a lack of generosity that's going on, and they freed that up. Like, hey, you need to get some men. We need to make sure this is taken care of. We want to make sure that we are, the people of God are this people that move in generosity toward others. And again, this generosity is not a generosity. It's always financial. 
Right in the middle between Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 6, the less than ideal, is, is Acts chapter 3, where Peter comes across, Peter and John come across a man who is in need. And listen to what they do. They were going to the temple at the hour of prayer, and the man, he was lame from birth, was being carried, whom they led daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms. He, he's needy. He's asking for money of those who are entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms from them. They're walking by, and he, he wants to receive, he needs money, he needs help, he's poor. And Peter, what does he do? He directs his gaze at him, as did John, and they said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. It, they were moved outward toward others in open-handed generosity. Here, it's not financial. Now, now, if you can move in the same kind of way that, that Peter and John did in generosity that's not financial and heal crippled people, by all means, do so. But the point here is what they did is they, they were generous here. They, they weren't just giving. They didn't have silver or gold. They didn't have that to give. They weren't able to be financially generous. And so what do they do? They're generous with what they had received. I, I want you to know Jesus. That's what they're going to. The point was to point this man to who Jesus was. That's what they give to him. And, and there we are, this, this open-handed generosity, moving them towards others in need to make sure that they showed the same generosity that they had been shown. In other words, the early church had this eye toward others and generous hands, and that's to continue to mark God's people. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, he, he says, I want you to do good to everyone as you have opportunity, especially those of the household of faith. Especially those of the household of faith. Generous hands are to be held out to everyone, especially those who are within the family, the household of faith. That, that is family language. It, Deuteronomy 15 has a lot of family language, a fellow Hebrew. These are people that are in your family. And, and what the, the scripture is clear about is that you need to make sure that you take care of family needs. So if there's someone within the family that has a need, if you have any opportunity to meet that, meet it. Christians are, are to be the, the most open-handed, generous people on the planet. Why? Because we have received the most generosity out of anybody else. God himself has given us his son that we might have eternal life. And that generosity should open up this flow of generosity that we can't close down because of what we've received. And so we move with this open-handed generosity towards other. Again, the, the motive is theological. We, we have received, and so we take care of the household of faith because we didn't belong to that household. God brought us into it. And because he brought us into it, we're to look to the needs within the household especially and to everyone. And if we have some opportunity, we're to meet those as you have opportunity. Now, it's difficult because, you know, around us today, we, we have a material plenty, right? So we're, you might be immediately surrounded by people who don't have any material needs. So there may, you may be thinking, like, is there even opportunity to show this generosity? I, I think our aim should be not just you know, opening up the pocketbook, but to have a generous heart. Aim is generous hearts. Work hard to make sure that you bring that generous heart wherever you are, so that if there is an opportunity, wherever that may be, the heart is there so that you can move towards them with generous hands. Work to bring a generous heart to every situation and see if an opportunity doesn't come up that you didn't see before. Or maybe it's just the opposite. We live in a technological age, and you start to look around and like, man, if you think about opportunities, you, you, you could be open up to worldwide opportunities that could be overwhelming. 
well, what's, what's my opportunity? I, I don't know. Do good to everyone, especially those of the household of faith. That's what we're called to. So find someone, start in the house, and if it's not there, then find someone and move towards them in generosity. That's what God's people do, because that's what God did to us. We're this people who respond to all that he has given us. And so, yeah, when we look at, at chapter 15, the specifics have changed since Deuteronomy, but God still hasn't changed, and he still motivates this generosity in his people, generosity that's to mark us in our interactions with others. And so we've moved from, from clean plates to generous hands, and all these ways to gen- Israel is showing themselves as, is to show themselves as a distinct people, but they're also to have distinctly marked calendars. And that's where he goes in chapter 16. Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover of the Lord your God for the month of Abib the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall not eat leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, for you came out of the land of Egypt in haste. That all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt." No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the flesh that you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain all night until morning. You may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, but at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell in it. And there you shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening at sunset at the time you came out of Egypt. And you shall cook it and eat it at the place that the Lord your God will choose. And in the morning, you shall turn and you go to your tents. For six days, you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day, there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. And you shall do no work. God cares about the the ordering of their lives all the way down. Again, not just just their plates and to their hands and what they're doing, but to their calendars. He, He wants all of it to be ordered rightly under his good reign and his good rule. And so he even tells them how to mark their calendars. And one of the things that's to mark their calendars is the Passover. And notice it's an intentional celebration. It's an intentional thing. It aids in the memory of of Israel's past. It aids in them thinking of of how on the Passover, they were once a people that were sold into slavery, but God rescued them by by giving them a way out for for death to pass over them. They were to kill the lamb and, and rub the blood over their doorposts so that death would pass over their households. They were to remember and how we had to flee out of Egypt, how Pharaoh said to get out of here. And we, we went quickly uh, from Egypt to the Red Sea and all the way to Sinai where, where God made this covenant with us, making us his people and, and he was going to be our God and, and Passover. And the intentionality of every single part of it was to aid in remembering that. He, he is making sure that, that time and, and distance and, and plenty of provision within the land wasn't going to lead them to forgetting that they were delivered out of their slavery. That they hadn't earned any of it. That God had freely given it. That they were the rescued ones. That they were the ones that were in need. And he met that need and they're to remember that. That's their roots. And so he says, mark your calendars. Keep the Passover. The whole ritual had this memorial purpose, but it also had doxological purposes. In other words, it was meant to focus them and to turn them to praise of the one true living God. He says, do this to the Lord. Offer these sacrifices, they were to be to the Lord. In other words, they're channeling even their calendars, their, their celebrations, all of it in praise to their God. And the Feast of Weeks is the next feast. It was to be doxological as well. Verse 9, you shall count seven weeks. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put 
to the standing grain. And then you shall keep the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, and you and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and that you shall be careful to observe these statutes. The Feast of Booths, he says in verse 13, you shall keep the Feast of Booths seven days when you shall have gathered in the produce from the threshing floor and your winepress. And you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God, the place the Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all of your produce and in all of your work, in all the work of your hands, so that you will be altogether joyful. Three times a year, your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given. These feasts, these offerings, they go along with rejoicing, don't they? Tithes and requirements and feasts and marking your calendars all go right along with rejoicing and giving with generosity. And all of us to be motivated by this idea of their own redemption, that God had rescued them. Israel is to mark their calendars because God had marked their lives by redeeming them, redeeming them out of Egypt. And so they're to keep certain things because he has done something in their lives. Israel is to mark their calendars for joyful thankful, inclusive, everyone's involved in this, the community's in on this, inclusive feasts because they're God's people. And so here's what these feasts do. They help highlight who God is, that he is this generous, merciful God who moved toward them. They're to highlight what he has done in their lives, that he has brought them out of Egypt, that he has sustained them and provided for them in the land. And these feasts help point them to the proper response to all that God is and all that he's done. These feasts, this marking of the calendars is to all about being the people of God. It's to remember that he chose them, he rescued them, he blessed them in the promised land, that they are to be his people by receiving these things, marking their calendars, and rejoicing in what he has given. God had not rescued Israel and brought Israel into the promised land for them to be miserable or mopey or like other nations, burdened. He brought them in there to be altogether rejoicing altogether receiving and enjoying God's good provision. This is so unlike other nations. So as we reach the end of 16, verse 17, you're, man, this is distinct. All the way down to their calendars, their, their plates, their, their hands, their calendars. They're all showing that this is a distinct people, that these are the people of God, and they do things differently. But the tone and the temper of all that God requires of them is a joyful tone, a thankful tone. A tone of rejoicing, a tone of thankfulness. Again, that marks them as distinct. They weren't amazed by the nations around them and how thankful they were to their gods. They noticed that they were cutting themselves possibly, crying out to them, trying to do all they could so that their gods would bless them. But there's never a note that, hey, these guys are really thankful, let's be like them. But the people of God, they're to see what God has given what he's done, what he's given, and they're to be this people who uniquely are the ones who are rejoicing and thankful and happy because of all that God has done for them. They are this distinct people. 
Now, our plates and our generous hands are going to look different than Israel's. Our, Our calendars are marked differently, and they should be. But if we go through this and we think, man, I'm so relieved that I'm not like them and have to do what they do, so thank you, God, that I don't have to keep my plate clean in that way or move outwards in generosity the way they had to or, or mark my calendars in the ways that they did. We, we shouldn't have relief from that and thank God that we don't have to do that stuff. Hey, yeah, we are thankful that Jesus came and fulfilled the whole law so God's people aren't under the law anymore but under grace. But this doesn't then turn around and mean that now less is required of us. If you think that, man, God is really mandating a lot here in the law, all the way down to their plates, their hands, their calendars, if you think God is mandating a lot here then, and, and that the New Testament is somehow going to free us from that, then, then I think we need to read the New Testament rightly. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. And so what is the end of that? Honor God with your body. All the way down to who you are, your very being and existence. He says because God bought us by his free and sovereign and good grace, that the right response is not, oh, I'm so glad that I don't have any requirements of me now. The right response is to say, I get to now joyfully, freely, thankfully give all of myself unto him. All my whole body now belongs to him. I'm now a slave to the one true living God, joyfully, thankfully. I lay my life down for him, almost this Romans 12-ish way. In view of God's mercy to you, what do you do in response to what he has done? You, You say, here is my life as a living sacrifice given unto you. So not only is not less required, we, we could say in a way, like, grace demands more of us in response. It requires all of our very lives lived to the glory of God. But also, we're not less distinct than the people of God were in the promised land. And God distinguishes us. It's not in the ways we want to be distinct, although sometimes that's true. <laughs> maybe poorly, maybe rightly sometimes. God distinguishes us His way. And the most distinct thing about the people of God is that they have the Spirit of God dwelling in their midst, dwelling within them. And what the Spirit of God does is He empowers those people to live freely, thankfully, joyfully unto the Lord. So that when we see things like you are not your own, you are bought with a price, that doesn't make us shudder. Because the Spirit dwells within us, it makes us happy. That we, could, we get to be not our own, we get to belong to God, I can give Him my life. Yes, the Spirit is the only one that awakens that in us. And He comes and dwells with us. This is how God distinguishes his people. So yeah, maybe our plates look different than the world. Maybe our generosity, the way we move our hands looks different than the world. Maybe our calendars looks different than the world. All of it's empowered by God's distinct mark, his very presence in us. The Holy Spirit empowers it and enables it. And the Spirit identifies us as the sons of God, which means for us who are to change how we eat so that we do it to the glory of God and how we move outward to generosity in other people and even how we mark our calendars, it means for us that as we do all those things, we do it knowing that we have an inheritance stored up for us. We have the spirit of sonship that cries, Abba, Father, that knows the Father hears and knows us and the inheritance that he's going to give to sons, he's going to give to us as well. 
And so we have this inheritance that we're looking forward to receive and to joy. And it's not in Canaan. It's this place where moth and rust can't destroy. Where drought can't destroy what could be produced. And in response to that, in response to that, we are then this generous, joyful, thankful people unto the glory of God. Let's be that kind of people together. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being so good and being so kind to us, Lord. For disclosing to us, Father, the things that are important to you, that you have called us to do and to be. And Lord, help us not to get things out of order. You called us to be who we are. You've not called us to do so that we can be. And it's easy, Father, to make a law out of things. It's easy to, to go around the law of love that you've called us as New Testament Christians to walk under and to check boxes and, and to be legalistic and unloving. But God, you've, you've called us to be set apart because you've chosen us in love. You've called us to be the people that you've created in Christ. Lord, the requirement's higher. To, to live under the law of love is, it's a higher standard. It requires that we give everything to you first. Lord, help us to live by that standard, to love people, to be giving and generous to be careful in, in how we do everything, whether it be eating or drinking, celebrating, to be a people who are faithful to, to you and to each other and, and, and to, to be faithful to mark our calendars, Father, to set aside this day, to prioritize it, to come together, to not forsake the assembling together of the saints, to, to be a people who reflect joy, and happiness and fulfillment because we know you. God, you want everything in our lives. You care about the details because you love us so well. And we can read these laws, Lord, and, and we're going to read many of them. And we might not understand all the implications and all the consequences of why you tell us and why you told Israel to do these things or to not do these things. But God, we know that you love your chosen people. And you know everything. You see from a perspective that we will never see from. And so just help us, God, to trust you in all things and to obey you because you love us and because you said so. Thanks again, Father, for redeeming us, for saving us. Thank you for all the people and families represented here, our dear mothers who sacrificed so much who love so well. 
Thank you for your grace. It's in Christ's name. Amen.